0: service is going to be reading this and there's a lot of like really hard big words that I don't know if I'll be able to pronounce so bear with me but here we go (coughs) after these things when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her then the king's young women who attended him uh Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jar, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away from Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadash, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai who had charge of the women, and the young women pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for of, their beautifying, uh, of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young women went into the king, in the way she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace, In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abinahel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eye of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the word of the Lord.
1: you think stephen deserves a golf clap can we just like give that to him it was impressive good would you pray with me god we are grateful to um, to be ones who uh, bear your name Uh, god we're grateful to be sons and daughters we're grateful that you um, love us that because of the cross of christ uh, you delight in us you've extended the uh, incredible favor of salvation unto us. And God, we thank you that uh, even though we uh, await a heavenly home um, where all things will be made right and made new, uh, God, that we, um, in all the goodness of this world that we live in here, this secular world, and all that's messed up, God, we can um, be reminded that you are faithful and that uh, you never leave us alone. Um, that you are in ever-present trouble, ever-present help in time of trouble, and we just I praise you for all of that. And God, I pray that as we uh, as we um, dive into chapter two of this um, wonderful um, upside-down book of Esther, God, I pray that you would just uh, extend your grace to me. You power me by your Spirit, and I pray, God, that um, that our hearts would just be. Um, Fertile soil to receive your word and so that you might transform us uh, into ones who um, stand firm in who it is that we are in Christ. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And all of God's people said, amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, I'm curious how many of you had an opportunity to listen to or to watch last week's sermon. If you just raise your hands. Okay? About a little more than half of you. I would encourage you, it's like a, uh, it's like jumping, uh, picking up the book of Esther in chapter 2 or anywhere in the middle. It's like jumping into a uh, TV series in the middle of it. You don't, you won't have a ton of context. You can get some context by reading it, of course, but I would encourage you to to listen to or watch last week's um, sermon. Um, As Ryan might have said, at WCC we Uh, Teach through books of the Bible. Um, Old Testament narratives are a little bit different. Um, We're not going to be breaking down every single verse. We would be here until Jesus returns. So we're going to take sections of Scripture inside that chapter. And the best way to follow along is if you've got a Bible, either on your uh, either paper or um, digital, is to uh, open it up. We will not have the Esther scriptures on the screen. So that would be best way to best way to follow it. Um, Today is episode two. I've titled it, Exiles Living in a Secular World. Last week in episode one, we were introduced to King Ah Ahasuerus, the ruler of a majority of the known world. world. He reigned over 127 provinces from Ethiopia to India. His father is King Darius. Last week, I said that King Darius was his grandfather and that Cyrus was his father. I messed that up. Darius, King Darius, for you historians... Um, was his father, and King Darius had been defeated by the Greeks in the Battle of Marathon. King Ahasuerus was committed to avenging his dad's defeat. And so last week we saw Xerxes, in wanting to avenge his father's defeat, that he gave a feast that lasted six months and seven days, and it was designed to impress his military and government officials to rally them to his cause of invading Greece. And in the midst of this gross display of his royal glory, we saw the king who ruled the modern world couldn't control one woman. He had summoned his beautiful wife to be paraded in front of a room full of drunk and drooling men. And when she refused, she exposed the empire. And as great as that empire appeared on the surface, it wasn't what it seemed. The ultimate power of the empire or the secular world is just an illusion. And I want to just pause because I, I wanted to say this before. The heat just kicked on. Is anybody else hot out there? Like the heat is like, wow, okay. Um, the, um, this sermon series, especially last week and today, um, is rated R. Um, and I've tried to like bring it down to PG-13, um, but the reality is is that um, the things that are rated R, it's important uh, to teach. So, um, so parents, um, I'm going to do my best to um, to not have you um, explain a lot of things tonight. Um, do my best. Um, today's we are entering episode two. Uh, we will be introduced to two of our key characters um, in this story, um, Esther and her cousin Mordecai. In this episode, we're going to be introduced to Esther, who's an orphan girl who, along with Mordecai, have secret identities. And Esther finds herself caught up in a heart-wrenching search for the king's new queen. And there's three parts to this episode. Part number one is verses one through four a plan to please the king. Part number two is verses 5 through 11, a hidden identity. And part number three is verses 12 through 20, a lost identity. And as I've been um, marinating in this book and in this chapter today, it's caused me to ask a few questions of myself. And here's the biggest question. Um, Am I known in my circles? My circles are... Um, And I'm not going to include this as one of my circles, even though it's a big circle. But am I known in my outside circles, like my home, um, my gym, my coffee shop? um, Am I uh, known more for um, what I support, what causes and politicians and amendments and all that that I support? Am I known more by, more by that or by being a follower of Jesus Christ? What am I known more for? And I, and I, I think the, the honest answer is that um, some of uh, many, most, I would say know that I'm a pastor, but they don't know the extent of my faith. Um, they might just assume that I vote a certain way because I'm a pastor or maybe even a Christian. But do they know that I am a sold-out follower of the covenant God who purchased me? This section has great application for all of us. And let me give you a few questions to ponder. And these are not tidy questions, so I'm not sure. I think they're going to be on the screen. But first, are you known more for what you support or who you follow? In your circles, are you known more for what you support or maybe what you're against than you are for who you follow? Are you known more for your politics and your American citizenship Are you you known more for your stance on vaccinations and masks than you're known for being a follower of the covenant God who bought you? Are you known more as a conservative Christian or are you known as a follower of Jesus Christ? And the reason I bring that up, I don't even know what a conservative Christian is. Christians are followers of Jesus Christ. And we follow all that he has instructed us to follow. But are you known as a conservative Christian? Are you known as a sold-out follower of the covenant God who purchased you? Are you more prone to isolate from culture or to assimilate into the culture? And then finally, do you know the love and favor and delight of your heavenly Father? Like, do you know it? Like, not just here, but in your entire being. Do you know the love and favor and delight of your Heavenly Father for you? Today we're going to come face to face with two people who hide their faith in their covenant God and completely assimilate into the world. They've made a name for themselves in the culture they live in, but they don't speak about the name of the God who knows them by name. Verses 1 through 4, a plan to please the king. After the events of episode 1, King Xerxes' anger subsided. By the way, Xerxes is um, uh, Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name, or is it Persian name? Xerxes is his Greek name. We'll go by that because I, we'll get tongue tied otherwise. So Xerxes' anger subsided, and he remembered what Vashti had done and what, be, what had been decreed against her. And he is now seen licking his wounds. Maybe um, regretting banishing her forever. Maybe he's truly missing her. Who knows? We do know this, however, that he is a nar- narcissistic despot and wants everybody to please him. The world revolves around him. And whatever it was the king was feeling, as usual, he had no plan to fix it. So his king-pleasing advisors put forth a plan to find another queen, a miss. Persian Empire competition of sorts. A contest where there was no application process. There was no choice to enter. If you were young, if you were pretty, and you were a virgin living in one of the 127 provinces, the the entire known world, if you lived anywhere inside of that and you were young, pretty, and a virgin, you couldn't escape. And you would be gathered up and taken in to the king's harem in Susa the Citadel to take part in the contest. One lucky lady who pleased the king would wear the queen's crown. This contest, as we'll see, is not merely a beauty or a talent show, but it's a sex competition. The beautiful young virgin who pleases the king in bed would wear the crown. The advisor's suggestions, as you can imagine, pleased the king. The text doesn't inform us the way these young ladies and their families might have felt as they were being gathered up and taken into the heron. But I can only imagine. Maybe there was a few that saw it as an opportunity to get off the farm and make it big, have a life for themselves. But most, I would assume, were dragged away crying and holding on to the ankles of their mothers and fathers, knowing the reality that they will never marry, They'll never see their family again and most likely will never have children. You see the system of the powerful secular world is utterly heartless at times. In verses 5-11 through we see a hidden identity. Here for the first time we meet Mordecai, the Jew. Though there's still no hint or mention of God, we're introduced to one of God's covenant people. He is in citadel of susa remember citadel is the fortress inside the city of susa it's like think of the uh, maybe the white house or the pentagon inside of a city it's a fortress and this suggests that he works inside the fortress or inside the citadel in some manner and then we're given some random facts on his lineage that are important now actually and they'll become more important in the next couple of weeks Mordecai is, in fact, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, and his family tree goes back to Kish. And for some of you Bible scholars, you know that Kish is the father of King Saul. And we're going to see that King Saul um, uh, defeated the Agagites, which comes into play next week. And you can see that in 1 Samuel 9. The narrative tells us that he was carried away from Jerusalem into captivity in Babylon, However, it's unlikely that Mordecai was actually carried away because the events of the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon happened 85 years earlier. So it was most likely his ancestors who were taken captive. And the author's point of emphasis here is that Mordecai does not belong to the secular world. His status is one of an exile. Mordecai will be referred constantly throughout the narrative as Mordecai the Jew. Six times, actually. So it's important to understand that designation Jew is not an ethnic marker here. It's a religious marker. It denotes the people who are in a covenant relationship with God in living in exile. Esther was also in exile. In verse 7, I want to read this. It says, He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his his own daughter. Mordecai, the Jew, adopted um, his cousin Hadassah, who goes by Esther. Hadassah is her Jewish name or Hebrew name, and Esther is her Jewish name, is her uh, Persian name, excuse me. Esther, like Mordecai, has a hidden identity. She is adopted, she's beautiful, and she's trapped between two worlds that will only intensify in the coming years, as the story is fold, as the story is told in future chapters. Both, both Mordecai, Mordecai and Esther live compromised lives. They are God's covenant people, yet their true identity is hidden. They are caught in two worlds, enjoying all the life of Persia with a hidden faith. They are known more for their appearance and Persian alliance than they are for faith in their covenant God. So it's really easy to dismiss stories like this. Well, that was then, and like, what were they thinking? But I don't want us to dismiss this story, nor does the author, as a distant retelling of a world that is unlike ours today. We need to recognize that there is continuity between the Old Testament Jews and the new covenant people of God who by faith are in Christ, whether Jewish or Gentile. Paul says explicitly in Romans 2 that if you want to know what Jew really means, you'll be in error if you think it's an ethnic group of people marked by circumcision. A true Jew in the arc of the Bible's narrative is one who is transformed by the Spirit and a believer in Jesus Christ. There's no distinction between believing Jew or believing Gentile. Paul tells us this in, in, in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. He says, For no one is a, a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one Inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. In other words, when you see Jew in the Old Testament, when we hear Mordecai the Jew, we are to think of the covenant people of God in those days, yes. And we're to think of today all people who were in Christ by faith, both Jews and Gentiles. So we, by God's grace, are the new covenant people of God in Christ, Gentiles have been grafted in praise to the glory of God. And so as God's covenant people today, we're exiles as well. We're we're exiles. This secular world and all that's good in it is not our home. We're travelers stopping through. Mordecai and Esther lived as if the Persian Empire was their forever home. They became conformed to it and assimilated into the Persian culture. They were in the world and they became a part of the world. We too conform to our world or we make the equal and opposite error of isolating from the world. We either assimilate in or we isolate from it. When you assimilate into the world as a covenant child of God, you may bear the name of a political party or a particular cause more prominently than you bear the name of Christ. It's not bad to have a cause and to have a party. But it's when we have causes and parties that we're known for more than we're known by being sons and daughters of the covenant God is when we know that is Christians, we've assimilated into the culture. So how are you known? In isolation, the equal and opposite error, it's when we hedge ourselves into closed enclaves where the culture can't get in. And there's some wisdom in that to keep some of the culture out. But more importantly, our culture, God's culture, doesn't get out and it doesn't get to seep into the culture so that people see the gospel um, not just in word but in living color these two isolation and assimilation are equally paths of uh, uh, are equal paths of ease it's easy to conform and assimilate and when you do you're richly rewarded for it it's also easy to hedge in to close in and protect yourself but both of these failures Both of these lead to failures, and neither is the way that we're called to live. Jeremiah called for a third way in Jeremiah chapter 29. He says this. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. And this is not just a statement of quantity. It is of quantity, but it's also a statement of, 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 uh, while we're increasing in quantity, we're increasing in our proclamation so that people know who we are. And as people know who we are, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You see, the the prophet Jeremiah was rejecting both assimilation and isolation, and he was calling the people of God to maintain their identity as Jews while settling down and seeking the good of the city, making life in the city. And work to make it a better place. That's okay. This is also the path that Daniel took. He served the king of Babylon. He was inside the citadel of Babylon, if you will. But only as far as his well-formed conscience would allow. He wouldn't bow to their idols. He wouldn't eat their food. He wouldn't obey their laws when when the laws told him not to pray. But he served as a visor to the king. And Babylon was a better place for his civic leadership. He demonstrated love towards his city and led it well, even while continuing his bold witness to another world and another way of life. We're called to be distinct from the culture, but not separate from it. We're to be in the world, but what? Not of the world. We are to be known as followers of Jesus Christ. In verses 8 through 10, we see that Esther along with the pretty young virgins. Probably thousands of them were gathered and taken into the king's harem. Esther very quickly won the favor of the eunuch in charge of the harem and he advanced her to the front of the line. We don't know exactly why, but we know now she's getting the best cosmetics. No longer going to Walgreens. She's getting the best cuts of meat. She's probably getting organic veggies now. She's getting the best. and We don't know why she won favor, but I suspect that she was not only pretty, but she had some people skills. We also know that she did everything those in authority, those in authority over her asked, she, including obeying Mordecai and not making her Jewish identity known. Esther, the girl with a hidden identity, is now the odds-on favorite in Persia to win the crown. Verses 12 through 18, lost identity. After 12 months of beautifying these young virgins, which was four years after Queen Vashti was dismissed and divorced, it's now time for Persia Love's talent, judged by none other than the narcissistic despot, King Xerxes. This is their one shot to impress the king. One night is all they get, and they can bring anything in in with them that they wish to help please and impress the king. Lingerie. Cosmetics, perfume, whatever. One thing was for sure. Every woman who entered the king's quarters at night would come out a concubine. No longer a virgin. Can you imagine? This is 12 months in now. They've been beautifying for 12 months. Probably been away from their families for 15 months or so. Can you imagine the fear of going into the king's quarters, knowing that you had one chance to impress him? And if you don't, you'd be a permanent member of his concubines with with a chance for an occasional night with the king. But you'd spend the rest of your pointless life in his harem. No husband, no family, most likely no children, except one girl. One girl would become queen. One would win the lottery. She would have one chance, and if the king delighted in her, he would summon her by name. He is only delighted by appearance and performance. The 12 months of beautifying for their night with the king was like lambs being fattened for a slaughter. And we can't help but ask the question, why? Why do things like this happen in, in, around us, but in the Bible nonetheless? Why didn't God protect them? Why did God allow this? Here it is. No one knows why God does what he does until he tells us. And anyone who says otherwise is probably trying to sell you something. This includes the darkest moments in human history, from natural disasters to wars to the events in the book of Esther. But we also know that God takes no pleasure in evil. To say God takes pleasure in evil is an absolute lie. It's simply not His character. He says in Ezekiel 33, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, much less less the death and trials of His righteous. In James 1.13, it says God is not tempted by evil. And then additionally, we know that God could stop it if He wanted to. He's in complete control. Christopher Ashe says this. He says, It's a lie to say that God is powerless to stop them. Here we arrive at a timeless mystery. The tension in the midst of God's love, God's power, and the presence of evil in the world has burdened believers for thousands of years. Most of humanity has seen this issue as a riddle to solve. This was also the approach of Job and his friends, an approach that failed. But if it's a mystery and not a riddle, then it's something we behold and we trust to God. The one who can be trusted As Chase reminded us that he is the Alpha and the Omega. That he sees the beginning and the end. And as much as it may trouble and confuse us, it's not confusing or troubling to God. Our struggle is to trust Him to sort things out while we await His faithful promise to ultimately set all things right and to make all things new. When we encounter terror in this world, be it conquering empires, political crisis, pandemics, or the brutal kidnap and rape campaign of Xerxes, we don't always sit idle. But we can always trust that God, for reasons of His own, will work His good and perfect will out, whether or not we understand it. That's not our job to understand it. Our job is to remember the character and the promises of God and ask His Spirit to increase our trust in His good character and His sure promises. In verse 15, we see it's Esther's turn to go into the king. Esther a girl born to a daddy named Abihail who is now dead a girl who was adopted by Mordecai who is now all alone preparing to sleep with a man who only cares for the way she looks and the way she performs And the text says she brings nothing in of her own other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, and her life coach suggests. She's not only pretty, but she's likable. And she's won favor of all who met her. I would imagine she brought something else in with her, though. I would imagine that she brought in a hope that the king would delight in her. And not just know her by her looks and her performance, but actually know her by name. One other thing that she brought in with her that she doesn't know about at this time, spoiler alert, was the reality that the salvation of the world, that's your salvation today, depended on the results of this one ungodly night. And we'll see this in the next couple of weeks. In verse 16 through 18, we see that she won. The king loved her more than the others, and she won grace <clears throat> excuse me, and favor more than all the other virgins. This is good news from sad circumstances. And we we know that God can use bad and immoral people and circumstances to accomplish His good and perfect will. He can. He does. He has. We might think we know what's right and what we think we know what's best, but we don't. I would have never drawn this up. Esther was known and chosen for her looks and performance. And be, because of this, the king loved her and showed. What I just, I just read that. All is good now with, with the queen, right? All's good. She's in. Wrong. Remember Queen Vashti? We're also wrong to think that God will not use all of this for his purposes. Verses 19 through 20. In the final scene of this episode, we see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate which again informs us that he most likely holds a government office in the Persian compound. And here we're once again reminded of Mordecai's hidden identity and his love and concern for his adopted daughter Esther, who continues to hide her identity well. Esther is a product of her upbringing. She was commanded by Mordecai, her adopted father, to keep her ethnicity and religion a secret. He was in, she was instructed to never talk religion or politics. In one sense, Mordecai, who who only has a Persian name, has the greater responsibility in this whole thing. Yet Esther is guilty. She's a guilty victim, just like you and I are. We're guilty victims. And there's two primary lessons that I'm going to close with regarding our identity in this episode. Number one, we are exiles living in a secular world. This is not our home. We are called to live in the world, but not to be of the world. And the clearest way to live out your identity as God's covenant people is to actually understand what that means. He knows you by name. And you you didn't have to perform. You didn't have to have a certain look or be from a certain family. For the beginning of time, He called you out by name. He knows you personally personally. He loves and delights (coughs) in you, not because of anything you did. He created you to be loved by him. (coughs) He has prepared a feasting table for you, not because of your looks or performance, (coughs) but because of what Jesus looks like after being beaten and hung, and because of Jesus' performance, if I might, (coughs) on the cross. John 17, in John 17, Jesus shows his heart for his people, you and I, in regards to this as he prays to the Father for us. He says, but now I'm coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. You are not of the world. He's, he says, just as I, Jesus, am not of the world. Sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. There's a second lesson that um, for, those who, for, for those of you who might be able to identify with the sorrow that Esther faced, maybe more deeper than you'd like. Maybe you've been caught up in circumstances that have left you in sorrow with more questions than answers. Maybe these are current circumstances. Maybe these are are circumstances from a childhood where you're still carrying um, the pain of loneliness and being used and abused. It was years before the events of chapter 3 that we're going to talk about next week it was it was years after the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 and during those years things actually get harder and more difficult for Esther not easier there was a long season of Esther's life where she had no answers she was lonely she was confused and she was used but the amazing truth about this story is that God was going to redeem Esther's redeem Esther's story about by bringing salvation to all of His people throughout all time. So, in the murkiness and muddiness of all of this, it exposes to us our need for Jesus today. Today, in every day, we are each one of us we're a confusing mixture of being both citizens of. of of a secular world and citizens of a heavenly world were caught in between. We struggle with this world. We wonder why things have happened to us. And when we look at ourselves honestly, we should see a need for Jesus today. Listen to what Paul says in the midst of trials and suffering, where his hope is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and He will deliver us. He's delivered us from the power of Satan and sin and death. And He will continue to deliver us and take us all the way through. He on whom we have set our hope. And He will yet deliver us. Would you pray with me? God, we bless you. God, we thank you for um, your upside-down kingdom. We thank you that we have a good king and a faithful king who promises to let never leave us nor forsake us. God, I thank you that, um, that we don't need to know all the answers. Life isn't a riddle to solve, but it's a mystery to, um, to stand in. Keep our eyes fixed on you, the author, um, and the perfecter of our faith. That life in this secular world is a mystery, and all we need to know is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We need to know your character. We need to understand your promises so that we might stand firm in them in the midst of a topsy-turvy evil empire. And so God, I... uh, I pray this week as we go out, I pray, God, that we would um, just know um, your kindness in increasing ways and to um, rest in the idea that we don't need to have the answers but just need to trust in you. We love you, God, as I ramble here. Thank you that you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.